If you have a Bible, you can open up to the book of Acts. Acts we're in Acts chapter 9. Um, we're studying through the book of Acts together. Um, we've called this study as we're looking through Blueprint. And um, it's helping us as a church see God's design for the church. So as, we, uh, as we're going through it, we're getting glimpses into uh, some examples of what, what they were doing to, to start their church, what they were doing to build their church. And as we do that, we can take... Um, good examples from what they're doing and apply them to ours. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 9. If you have um, a Bible, we're going to be at verse 32, starting at verse 32 through 43. That's where we'll be today. I'm going to pray and then uh, we'll go ahead and get started. So let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for your word. We thank you that uh, it's powerful, it's sufficient. That it's sharper than a two-edged sword. It never returns void. It equips us. It trains us for righteousness. Uh, it shows us um, all the good works that you want us to walk in. It shows us who Christ is. That the scriptures bear witness about him. And that they're about uh, what he's done for us. That they're primarily uh, a, book that help, a book that helps us see and understand Christ. And Lord, I pray that as we look at it, we would put ourselves under the authority of it. And that as you speak to us this morning through your word, Lord, that we would would listen, we would understand, but even more so, God, that we would obey. We know that you have left us here, not as orphans, but as sons and daughters, but also to carry out a mission until you bring us home. And the primary means to carry out the mission is the church. And so we pray that we would be fully equipped this morning to do that. And that we would send out as missionaries so amazed by the good news of the gospel. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as Jordan said, uh, if you want to, if you have a a young one that's a little fussy, um, or you just want to... maybe a nurse and mom, if you go right through this little door, these double doors here, on the right, there's a little counseling room, and uh, there's, a, there's a wedge in there, and you can be able to hear the entire service in there. Um, we think that that'll help out um, as, we're, as we're here at, at York Baptist Association. So um, we are in Acts chapter 9, starting at verse 32 through 43. And as we've been going through the book of Acts, right here there's a tremendously sharp turn. If you look at the very first a uh, couple words that says, now as Peter went here and there. We haven't been talking about Peter at all. Uh, thus far, if you kind of look back with me, if you even go to maybe chapter 6, we see that the, the first servants or the first table waiters were selected in, in chapter 6, and then Stephen gives his big speech. Uh, so we haven't talked about Peter since, you know, chapter 5, and then Peter gives his, his big speech, and then as you go into 9, you, you, I'm sorry, 8, you hear about Saul and Philip and what they've done. In chapter 9, you hear about Saul's conversion and, and how he's come to Christ and what he's doing. And so as we last saw, we saw that Saul was being prepared for ministry. Uh, we got this big preparation, and now Luke, the writer, has stopped, and he's not going to talk about Saul for a few more chapters, and he's turning again and going back over to, to Peter in verse 32. So, um, as the book of, of Acts is unfolding, we're seeing kind of the, some of the major players that Luke's wanting us to understand are people that begin the, the early church are Saul and Peter. They're going to be 
basically written about primarily Saul for the rest of Acts. But Peter is taking, I'm sorry, Luke is taking a major turn here back over to Peter in verse 32. Um, and really, chapter 9, this end of chapter 9, is preparing us, the reader, to understand what's going to happen in chapter 10. There's a major, major thing that's going to happen in chapter 10. Maybe you've heard where Peter has this kind of vision, and after that, he realizes that this gospel can be taken to the Gentiles as well. And so what's going to happen before he he has that vision, we're going to go through that in the next few weeks, but before that happens, uh, God's preparing him for the fact that the people that aren't, ju- that aren't going to just be saved are going to be Jews, but they're going to be Gentiles. And so the way he's doing that is, in Acts chapter 9, verse 32 through 43, getting his um, mind and heart prepared for that fact. So in this particular text, there's three miracles that we're going to see that prepare Peter for the fact that he's going to be sharing the gospel with people that he's never thought of. People that he's never envisioned would be invited into the family of God. And not only is that the case for Peter... But it applies to us as well. So miracles prepping uh, Peter, uh, and it's also prepping us. And it's prepping Peter for mission and preparing us for mission. So you'll see these miracles and how they unpack, uh, how they unfold, I'm sorry, in this text. And then we'll see that it's prepping him for the following chapter. Now, uh, I'm going to go ahead and read the entire text. And then we'll go back and I'll, and I'll we'll look at them each one at a time. Verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. So, moms, if you're pregnant, there's a good name right there for, for a daughter. Dorcas, that'll, that'll go well. Anyway, probably want to stick with Tabitha. Verse Um, 36 middle. She was full of good works and acts of charity. She was actually an awesome lady. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they washed her, they laid her in the upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, just 10 miles, by the way, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, he took them to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, were weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside, put all the people outside, and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, uh, she sat up, and, she, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. <clears throat> then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. So we see here there's uh, miracles that are happening, getting him ready uh, for going on mission. Now, I would remind you, uh, before this time, if you remember, Peter was commanded to stay in Jerusalem. You stay in Jerusalem, and as we've seen in other chapters, that it was actually um, Philip who had left and gone to people that were not necessarily Jews in Jerusalem, but went down into Judea and Samaria, fulfilling Acts 1, chapter 8. Well, here Peter is, is hearing that that's happening. And so it says, now Peter went here and there among them all, and he also came down to the saints that lived at Lydda. So he's now officially moved himself out of Jerusalem, thinking, okay, I don't have to stay exclusively here in Jerusalem. I can also go be on mission in other places. And so as he's going around, he's going here and there, doing mission work. Um, and, and he comes up to uh, this town called Lydda. 
and it says he visited all the saints who were there. Now, I just want to take one little side note on the word saints. You may have heard this, um, but uh, I, want to, I want to point out a couple of things that, that I think are important here. Number one, it says he also came down to all the saints who lived at Lydda. So the first thing is uh, that he's going to people that are believers, likely new believers, and he's here in their new, new believers, and he's wanting to go there because he's wanting to teach and encourage these new people that are in the faith. And so Pastor Peter uh, knows that there's other people. He's been in Jerusalem at one particular time, but he has such a heart for the church, people that he doesn't know, that he goes to these particular people, and immediately as he's getting there, wanting to teach them, wanting to encourage them, wanting to build them up in the faith and help them persevere in the faith. But the second thing is regarding the word saints. He calls them, Luke does, saints. And this term is actually rare, just four times in the entire book of Acts, uh, and You've probably heard it before, like Mother Teresa's a saint. You know, you've got all these different people, Catholicism, they have to do miracles, and then they can kind of officially call them saints. But um, that's not really the root word or meaning really historically behind it. Uh, It comes from the word sanctify, and what Luke is trying to reinforce is this. Uh, John Stott says, it's not a question whether Christians are meant to be holy. They are. And so Luke's trying to help us see that these particular people are saints because they have trusted in Christ. So anybody that's put their faith in Christ is now a believer. They've been justified, and they're on the path towards sanctification. They're a saint. And so um, these are believers, for sure, that are on the path, just like you and I. We're all on the path of, of uh, being sanctified. So the, the quote that Stott says, it's not a question whether Christians are meant to be holy. They are, applies to us. You who are in Christ who have had maybe the worst week this week ever. You, you, you feel like you have absolutely sinned it up to the utmost and you're wondering how in the world can God ever love you? How in the world can ever God accept you? Here's the, here's the truth about you if you're in Christ. It's not a question whether you're meant to be holy. You are holy. God has declared you. It doesn't matter to me whether it's been your worst week or your greatest week in the faith. The truth is that you are holy in God's eyes. You've been declared righteous completely. And so since that's the case, you are now on the path of being sanctified. So as we're seeing this word saints being, um, being mentioned, we, we shouldn't pass over that. Uh, that's actually something that applies to us as well. And it says, therefore, verse 33, Peter found a man named Aeneas bedridden for eight years who was paralyzed. We can, we can breeze through that because we've heard so many healings in the Gospels and in Acts and just not let it hit us for a second. But just, just think for a second. You, you're bedridden for eight years. Put yourself in that. Like you can't earn money. You can't support your family. You can't take care of your children. You can't go visit people. You don't go down to the Walmart Hebrew and buy your own stuff. So everything has to get, be given to you. You're laid up in bed, paralyzed. And you're not watching Netflix because they don't have that, right? You're paralyzed. You're totally dependent on someone else caring enough, concerned enough to come be in the same room with you and just sit and talk for eight years. For eight years, this man is like this. So Peter walks in to a man who's not likely just ho-hum, but desperate, very desperate. And so this illustration of desperation that we're seeing here is going to pull us into chapter 10 where this man's physically desperate for someone to just be there with him and perhaps 
completely unbeknownst to him, maybe even being healed. And we're going to see, as that bleeds into chapter 10, that's the state of the people that he is going to see come to know Christ spiritually. Desperate. There is no history of Gentile salvation, but we'll see it in chapter 10. But in this particular text, we have a man bedridden for eight years. I think we need to stop and just feel the weight of how awful that would be. Peter, who's only done a little bit of healing thus far, um, it's, not a, it's not a big thing for the apostles. It was, it was a big thing for Jesus. He was Christ. He was God himself and could do it. Peter, who's just now getting a taste of being able to do stuff like this, as we've seen at the gate called Beautiful back uh, in Acts chapter 2. Peter said to him, Aeneas, not taking his own credit, but, but putting it all in Christ, Jesus Christ heals you. And then he tells him, rise and make your bed. Rise and make your bed. Um, C.S. Lewis calls this rise and make your bed the miracle of reversal. This is the effects of sin and the fall are reversed in a glimpse of an eye, and now there's a new creation given. This man was completely bedridden, not able to do anything, and the reverse of the fall happens to where he's made whole completely and able to walk around. Not completely in the sense that spiritually, um, but physically, he has the, a miracle of reversal. <clears throat> and immediately, he rose. So there's an instantaneous nature about this, this healing that Peter gives to him. As soon as he says, and mark the words, rise and make your bed. This is, this is clearly something that uh, Peter has experienced before. So now we're going to see something that, in this particular text, where we're just kind of breezing through, getting to chapter 10 to hear about the Gentiles finally, get, finally getting saved, there's, there's the on-the-surface story of the eight-year bedridden men getting, getting healed and Dorcas, or Tabitha, or Gazelle, it means Gazelle, uh, being brought back to life. But then there's actually deeper things that are happening. Because both of these miracles that you'll see, these first two miracles, both of them have actually been already done by Jesus. And it's as if Luke is trying to help you see. Both of these miracles have both been done. And the lesson that was learned in both of those is something that Peter needs to learn right here. So he says... Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose and all the residents of Lydia and Sharon saw them and they turned to the Lord. So the first thing I want you to see in, in the miracles is this. Peter uh, heals Aeneas, an eight-year bedridden man. And the effect is, as he does this, an amazing healing that Peter does, which he's replicating an amazing healing that Christ has done, uh, brings salvation. So here's, here's the uh, replication. This is... This is Peter not acting out on his own. How did he know what to say? How did he know what to do? Because Jesus has had this almost exact same thing happen whenever he was um, walking around still on earth. So if you flip over to Mark chapter 2, Mark chapter 2, we'll see this first miracle uh, when it was first done by Jesus. And Peter's just seen it before and remembers it and employs it in his practice. In, in Mark chapter 2, Verses 1 through 11, you see, And when he had returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And as many were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door. Um, I'm sorry, I lost my place. As, as they were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came. So this is when Jesus was preaching and the paralytic that was br brought to him. Uh, just like we see here, there's a paralytic. 
Um, in verse 3, and they came bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get, him, get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had, laid, and they had made an opening, they laid down the bed which the par- paralytic lay. So here we see the kind of um, first thing that we're seeing in Mark chapter 2 is that these men are willing to bring their friend to Jesus no matter the obstacle. It doesn't matter what the obstacle. There's people everywhere. We're cutting a hole in the roof. Get up there. Somebody cut a hole. We're going to lower him down uh, through the roof. So mission-wise, we need to not let any obstacle be anything that keeps us from seeing people come to know Christ. Hence, whenever we get into chapter 10, the lesson that Jesus is wanting Peter to understand is don't let any obstacle keep you from sharing the gospel with anybody. doesn't matter that they're a Gentile doesn't matter. Everybody is invited into the family of God. So Jesus is preparing Peter as he's healing this man. Peter's mind is recalling this miracle saying, oh, that's what the Lord is trying to teach me. Number one, that I'm to bring people to Christ no matter what the obstacles. Gentile's a big obstacle, but not anymore. Not anymore. And you can see as we keep going, they couldn't get him. They removed the roof. And Jesus saw their faith. He said to the paralytic, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, that's not what everybody was expecting there. If, if a man's paralyzed and he's being lowered in front of him, Jesus looks at the man that's paralyzed as he lays on the ground. You're expecting Jesus to say, you're healed physically. But that's not what he does, right? He looks at a paralyzed man. By the way, who can... What, what, I mean, what's the big long, long laundry list of sins that a paralyzed man does, right? He's not walking around. He's not doing much. He just lays... And he looks at this man, helping us see that we're all born sinful. And he looks at him and he says, your sins are forgiven. And everybody thinks to themselves, well, that's not what I was expecting. That's not what I was expecting. But he forgives his sins. He doesn't heal them. Now, some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, Jesus knew that the scribes were going to think this prior to And the scribes, knowing that only God is the one that can forgive sins, and then this man, whom they presume only to be a man, says, your sin's forgiven. Jesus is helping them see. They're already thinking, who can do this? And he's wanting them to think, who can do this? Because he's going to look at them and say, yeah, that's right. Only God can do this. And guess who I am? I'm God. I can do that. And he's going to prove it to them. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they questioned within themselves, he said, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sin's forgiven? Or, watch, watch these words, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Almost an exact verbatim from what Peter, when he says, uh, rise and make your bed. So it's almost an exact verbatim. So Jesus is going to move in an even bigger way. And he's going to help them see, you, you think that I can't forgive sins, And he's still laying there completely paralyzed. You're asking who I am. So just so you know that I can forgive his sins, I'm going to heal him too. But I did the forgiving sins first. And then I'm going to heal him. And when he gets up, you're going to know not only visually I can see that this healing is valid physically. But the first thing I did when I forgave his sins is also valid. And so he tells him, which is easier? uh, Your sins are forgiven or rise and take up your bed. But now you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately, there it is. I mean, same, same, same way it happened. He rose immediately, picked up his bed, and they all went out before him so that they were all amazed. 
and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. And so the first thing that we see here back over in the book of Acts is Peter remembering the life of Christ, seeing a paralyzed man and remembering how how Jesus had uh, healed a paralyzed man, says almost the exact same words, rise and make your bed. And now as he sees this man immediately healed, Peter's thinking to himself, there were obstacles for the mission that we, those men were willing to overcome. And God's saying, yes, that's right. And there's going to be obstacles in your mind in the future that don't need to be things that need to keep you. Gentiles coming into the family of God is not an obstacle anymore. How, however, they can come to know Christ now. And then we go to the next one where God's going to continually prepare him. Um, so the first thing is that he helps him see that any obstacle... You can overcome. It doesn't matter what it is. Do anything to bring anyone to salvation. Because Gentile salvation is coming. So let's just ask this question for ourselves. Quick application question. Are we willing to do anything that's not sinful to bring anyone, Gentiles, you're Gentiles, but for, for Peter that's a big deal. So who are, the, who are the big deals that I, wow, I can't even imagine to salvation. He's preparing Peter, but he's also preparing us. That there's, there's people that you've never even thought of that need to hear the gospel. Now, the second preparation is pretty amazing. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha. The, the likelihood or the, the, the alikeness of this particular miracle to Jesus is, is astounding. Now, there was... Um, in Joppa, a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas or Gazelle. And this notice this one thing that it says about her. She was full of good works and acts of charity. This woman was a servant in her church, so much so that what she made, the other ladies were literally at the bedside as she's died, wrapping themselves in the things that she made, just holding and being thankful for the things that she made at her bedside as she's dead. Because it tells us there in verse 39... Um, all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. So this one was a woman full of good works and acts of charity. Likely we can, we can uh, ascertain from this text that these weren't things that she was necessarily making and charging. She was, she was making and giving. She was serving. She was a full of good works and acts of charity. And the people in the church, because they, this, this uh, Tabitha was so beloved when she had passed... The church was just bereaved. They were absolutely devastated because they loved her. And I was just thinking, oh, to serve the church, all of us, to serve the church like Tabitha, that the people are absolutely devastated that we're not there. Not just that if we were to die, but even physically. But we're, we're so wanting to serve the church and give our hearts and make the things that we can or do use our gifts to our fullest that we give to the church in such a way that they are bereaved when we're not there, when we're not around. She was a woman full of good works. And in those days she became ill and she died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in the upper room, preparing her for burial. And since Lydia was near Joppa, the disciples hearing, I mean, just, just 10 minutes, I mean, sorry, 10 miles away or so, um, it says this, uh, the disciples hearing that Peter urged him, they sent two men and urging him, please come to us without delay. 
Please come to us while out today. Now, now listen to verse 39 through 42. And then we're going to look at the exact miracle that this is basically replicating. You can hear so many similarities. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to an upper room. The widows stood beside him weeping, showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas or Tabitha made while she was with them. But Peter put everybody outside the room. He knelt down and he prayed. And turning the body, he said, Tabitha, arise, or literally... Tabitha Kumi, and when she opened her eyes, um, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and then he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then he called all the saints, and he presented her alive. Go to Mark chapter 5. Go to Mark chapter 5. All right, look at verse 21 through 24, and then in, in this particular text... Uh, starting in Mark chapter 21, there's, there's, a, there's a healing within a healing. It's like he's going to heal the 12-year-old, and as he's going to heal the 12-year-old, the woman who had the issue of blood that was for 12 years touches this garment, and then he, the, the writer kind of focuses in on that, and when that's done, it goes back to the healing of the little girl. Um, so go to verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again to the boat to the other side, a great crowd went around him, and he was beside the sea, and he came. One of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus, by name, seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little girl, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be well. And Jesus went. And then you go into the, the, the passage uh, right after that, in verse 24 and following, where Jesus is going to heal the, ish, the woman with the issue of blood. Uh, and he does that, and it ends in verse 34. So pick back up with me at 35, because this is where, you know, after he does that, he keeps going to, to heal the little girl. Verse 35. And while he was still speaking... So he just healed her, and somebody else from Jairus' house, somebody who was still, still speaking, there came from the ruler's house uh, someone else who just told them, hey, your daughter's dead now. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they had said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except for Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. So Peter, again, at this particular story as well, going to do almost the exact, he's just, he's just doing what he sees Christ do. Watch this. They came to the house of the rule in the synagogue, and Jesus saw the commotion people weeping and wailing loudly, just like uh, Tabitha's friends. And when he went into the, entered to the room, why are you all making commotion and weeping? The child's not dead but sleeping. They laughed at him. And then what does he do? Put them all outside. Put them all outside the room, just the same thing as Peter did. When Peter walked in the room, everybody, y'all get on out of here. It's just going to be me and, and Tabitha. Jesus does the same thing put them all outside, um, and he took the child's father and mother who were with him and, uh, and went in where the child was, and watch this, taking her by the hand, look at the words, instead of saying, Peter saying, Tabitha Kumi, look at this, Talitha Kumi, it's literally almost the exact same phrase, he just switches it one thing, because this little girl's name was Talitha and not Tabitha, and he says, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately she got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should do this. And he told, he told them to give her something to eat. So almost the exact same uh, instance, Peter walks into a room where there's, there's people crying. And as they're crying... Um, he, he walks in, and there's a lady that's dead. He, he tells all, everybody to leave, and he goes over to the, to the lady's hand, um, kneels down beside her, and instead of saying, Talitha 
Kumi. He says, Tabitha Kumi. And in Mark chapter 5, whenever Jesus walks up to this little girl um, and he tells everybody, you don't need to worry. She's, she's not dead. She's only sleeping. Um, Tim Keller uh, writes a little commentary on this particular um, thought. And he says this. Remember, Jesus sits down beside the girl, takes her by the hand, and says two things to her. The first is Talitha. Literally, it means little girl. But that, but that does, not get, uh, does not get across the, same, the sense of what he's saying. This is a pet name, a diminutive term of endearment. Since this is a diminutive t- name that a mother would use for a little girl, it probably is best translated like honey. The second thing that Jesus said to her is kum or kumi, which means arise. It's not be resurrected. It just means get up. Jesus is doing exactly what this child's parents might do on any sunny morning whenever she's waking up. He sits down and he takes her hand and he says, honey, it's time to get up. And she does. Jesus is facing the most implacable, inexplorable enemy of the human race, death. And such is his power that he holds this child by the hand and gently lifts her right up and saying, Honey, get up. Jesus, in his saying this in his actions, if I have you by the hand, death itself is nothing but sleep. Get up. And so, the miracle here that's being displayed in front of Peter's eyes that he's, he's getting to do, he's remembering that just as this woman was physically dead, and Jesus is so powerful to just come and say, Hey, Tabitha, just get up now. It's time to get up. This is the exact insurmountable power that he has in us when we were spiritually dead, and he called us out of death into life. He looked at it and he said, Hey, Fudd, wake up. He looked at you and he said, Hey, wake up. And you crossed over from death to life. That simple, that easy for Christ. And so the beauty of the gospel, as Peter is saying these things, the glory of Jesus' power, and just the beauty of reminding himself that I once was dead, and now I'm alive in Christ. I was completely dead in sin, an enemy of God, and God came to me and said, awake and now I'm alive the second preparation that Peter's experiencing the first one was go over any obstacle in order to share the gospel but the second thing is and now I want you to think about yourself I want you to rehearse because the thing that's going to push you out the catalyst the impetus the motivation to go do that is the fact that you've been saved so Consider what the Lord has done already. The vast nature he has, the deep father's heart he has to come down beside you and hold you by the hand and say, hey, come back to life. And then you're raised from the dead. Consider the love that you have for the Savior for doing that for you. And then that is the thing that drives Peter out, out of his comfort zone to go and share the gospel with people. It's the same thing that would do it for us. If we're going to, Overcome any obstacle to share the gospel. The motivating factor is the gospel. 
the thing that motivates us is reflecting on the fact that we've been saved, reminding ourselves of the glory of Jesus, awakening us, breaking us, and then being broken for the lost to go now and share the gospel with other people. So, how often do you remind yourself of the glory of the gospel in your own life? How often do you remind yourself that the Savior broke through our rebellion and gently and lovingly, he was never angry at us, gently and lovingly came and said, he was angry at sin and said, arise, wake. How often do you, whenever you remind yourself of of the gospel, use that to inspire you then to go live on mission? Whenever we find it difficult to carry out Acts 1-8 or Matthew 28, 18 through 20, sharing the gospel with others, I think that the reason why is because we've often forgotten what Christ has done for us. Whenever we're not sharing the gospel with other people, we've become used to the fact that God has saved us and it hasn't moved us again. We haven't been moved to tears that he would save us. And that's why we don't share it with other people. And so this second preparation is he's wanting Peter to see that you need to be willing to overcome any obstacle. And you're also going to be motivated by the fact that Jesus has done this in your own life. And he says, notice this result. When he gave his hand, he raised her up and calling all the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. This is the refrain, by the way. This is, this is an amazing refrain that we keep seeing over and over and over in the book of Acts. Look at 35 again. All the residents of Lydia and Sharon saw them, and they returned to the Lord. In verse 42, and all it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. At the end of each little passage, you'll notice like it, something happens, and then all of a sudden, scores of people came to Christ. Something happened, a totally different circumstance, scores of people came to Christ. I think that this is, and I've said this numerous times, I think that this is the way it's supposed to be. The book of Acts, in giving the blueprint, is helping us see when believers are getting together, being the church, and doing what the church has called them to do, that the end result is people come to know Christ. Over and over and over and over and over in the text, that said, well, we're Christians. And we're supposed to be doing, but we don't ever, it seems like we don't ever get to say, and everybody turned to the Lord that day. And many, many believed in the Lord. And so I would say, we are believers. But as they're believers living it out, they are sharing their faith, I think, in such a way, with such amazing uh, confidence that the Lord has taken it and using it. And they're they're seeing tons of people come to know Christ. You can say, Fudd, it's a different time back then. You know, the church was just getting started. The Lord was just blessing their work, and he hasn't blessed ours. We, we live in America, postmodernism, and everybody hates truth, blah, blah, blah. I understand, but it's the same Holy Spirit. He, he hasn't changed. And so, I would say, if we truly want to see a move of God, and I mean the Lord just shake up York County, Rock Hill, Fort Mill, like we've never even imagined Let's start doing these things. Let's start saying, I'm willing to share the gospel with anybody. 
I'll, I'll, I'll rip the roof off and lower people down if I have to. There's no obstacle. There's no obstacle. What's, what are the obstacles that keep you from sharing Christ with people? Bringing people to Jesus. I will rehearse the gospel repeatedly in my mind so that I'm so moved and so overcome what Christ has done for me that I will live on mission. Now you say to yourself, wait, you're saying there was three, three miracles here, Fudd, and there's clearly just two. Why, why do you say three? There is a third miracle, and it's the very last verse. And, <clears throat> I mean, I didn't know this until commentators told me this, right? But this is what 43, look at this. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a tanner. Well, how's that a miracle? Kent Hughes says this. After this particular miracle in 36 and following, Peter stayed in Joppa with one Simon a tanner. The significance of this is that a tanner's place of business was anathema to a fastidious, I can't say that word very well, fastidious Jew. That if I'm really, really serious about Judaism and following the law and not being around dead animals and, you know, all the Levitical laws. I'm not going to go to a tanner's place where there's dead animals hanging everywhere. Like, I'm not going to a tanner's place anyway. You know, like, I don't want to hang around dead animals unless I just shot the deer. But other than that, I'm not. Anyway, that's a different story. Um, but deer season starts in a week. Um, the significance of this was that, um, that he is at a tanner's place uh, of business. It was anathema to a fastidious Jew, if that's how you say it. It was highly unpleasant and smelly, and animals were slain there. Tanners were ostracized in these cities and had to live 50 cubits outside of town. So they had to live pretty far outside of town, not just for the stink, but because of the Levitical laws. Like, you you can't have all your dead animals around here, or everybody's not holy. Everybody's not sanctified. Everybody's not set apart. Rabbinical law stated that if a betrothed woman discovered that her fiancé was involved in any kind of tanning... She could even break the engagement. That's a pretty big deal. However, Peter had met a Jewish tanner who loved Jesus, and he was willing to associate himself with him. God was at work in the impulsive apostle's heart. The old biases were wearing thin. God has a way of softening our prejudice, prejudices if we are at least a bit willing to learn. Peter's attitude towards the Gentile word was mellowing, but a bigger change was still to come. So the third miracle is that Peter, I mean, the absolute serious Jew, is overcoming all kinds of prejudices, all kinds of biases. That's a miracle, by the way. That's a miracle. When prejudice is in our life and biases in our life and things that keep us from wanting to reach out and be with and hang out and stay with in their home, people that are not like us, that's a miracle of God in our heart. And here we see, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9, 22, I've become all things to all people that I might save some. And he's just, he's well aware that it's Jesus who saves, not him, but he's, he's speaking uh, in a human sense. Peter is understanding that now. He's becoming all things to all people. The preparation for chapter 10, where the Lord's just going to blow his mind with a vision. Hey, you can go eat some pork now. You can eat bacon, Peter. Come on. Like, that's about to happen. He's blowing his mind. And here, the third, the third uh, preparation is that Peter 
stays with Simon the Tanner. He's resolved in his mind that any obstacles that that people could come to know Christ, I'm going to remove them. And it's going to start with my hope and love for the gospel and what he's done. Just like this woman was raised to life, I I've been raised to life spiritually, and I'm going to let the gospel be the motivating factor to help me overcome obstacles. And not only that, I'm going to be a kind of guy that doesn't just overcome obstacles to share with people that look just like me and act just like me and have my same education and everything. Instead, I'm going to stay with Simon the Tanner. I'm going to overcome my prejudice. I'm going to overcome my biases. I'm going to overcome anything that would make me think I can only be around those people because those are the people that need to hear the gospel. I'm going to be around the Gentiles. I'm going to share the gospel with them. And we're going to see how that happens at Cornelius' house in chapter 10. But what are our biases? As we see Peter overcoming and staying with Simon the Tanner, what are our biases? What are your biases? Who are the people that you cannot just imagine associating with for the sake of the gospel? Who are the people that you could never imagine hanging around, having dinner with, being in their home, them being in your home? And instead of saying, now get out there and just be obedient, let, let's, just, let's just make it simple. What's your first step to become obedient to that? I know that overcoming those things is a miracle. It's a work of God, and it, it, it doesn't happen overnight. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it does. Here it's looking like it's happening. But what are the things that, can, what are the things that you can do, the first step to where you can say, I can overcome that. I can... I can go to their house and eat dinner. I can invite them into my house and eat dinner. Who are the people that I I do not know, that I just am so comfortable that I've never pushed myself to know? For Peter, I mean, it's hanging out with Gentiles. He's hanging out with a guy that, that kills animals, and it's smelly and nasty. And he's overcoming the, the, the laws of Judaism. Now, uh, the Lord, I think, is telling us the same thing. That if we're going to fulfill Matthew 20, if we're going to fulfill the mission, preparing us that we need to be willing to overcome obstacles, start with the gospel, and be willing to become all things to all people to save some, and kill prejudice, kill bias, kill anything in our head that says, um, those people will get saved by somebody else, not me. So what are we going to learn from this? And then we'll, we'll go into a time of the Lord's Supper. What are some things that we can learn from this text? Number one is this. Resolve in your mind, resolve in your heart, that you will daily, if you need to do it hourly, but daily, remind yourself of the glory that, of Jesus awakening you spiritually. Remind yourself every day, be broken over the fact that Christ would overcome death and then say, Be broken over the fact that Christ has done that. And let that break your heart for the lost. That's the first thing. Rehearse the gospel daily. We're going to do that in just a second in the Lord's Supper. A great example for us to be able to do that. The next thing. Overcome. Be willing in your mind to say, I'm going to overcome any obstacle so that I can bring someone to salvation. Whether it's, um, I don't have a car or... I don't know how to get in touch with them or whatever it is. Be willing to rip the roof off the house to bring people to Jesus. 
And the last one, which is similar but a little different. In your own heart, know your biases. Know the prejudices in your heart and ask the Lord to kill those things. Become all things to all people and take the first step for the miracle of that to be destroyed in your life so that you can, no matter who they are, no matter who they are, see them come to know Christ and be used by God to do it. We're going to go into the time of the Lord's Supper here where you'll have a tangible example of reminding yourself of the gospel. Christ's body broken and his blood shed so that you can be forgiven. And as we go into the Lord's Supper, I would just, I would just remind you that this is a time for Christians. So if you're a, a, a believer in Jesus, then you're invited to the table. If you're not, we want you to just observe. Just watch uh, what's happening and hear the gospel be proclaimed to us and to you. You can come forward to both sides. Um, and wh- what I want you to do is get the bread and get the cup and come back to your chair. And then we'll, we'll go through the Lord's Supper together corporately. There's, there's something important about the church. Uh, it enhances our unity as we take the Lord's Supper together. And I just also remind you that there's, there's wine and juice. And there's a little sign in front. So make sure you pick up the right one for yourself. Um, the Bible tells us that before we take the Lord's Supper, uh, that we should reflect and that we shouldn't do it in an unworthy manner. And so you've got, you've got time here. Uh, Jordan will, will lead us in a song uh, together in worship, and you can sit and think and pray for a while, and when you're ready, you can come forward and just hold the cup, hold the bread when you get back, and you can sing uh, as you want, but take your time, and then when everybody has prepared their hearts, I'll come back up, and I'll lead us together in the Lord's Supper. Let me pray, and then we'll rehearse and remind ourselves of the the gospel and remember what Christ has done. Jesus, we're so thankful for this text as we see Peter being prepared for mission that it also prepares us. And so we also pray, Lord, that right now as we take the Lord's Supper, that the beautiful opportunity we have to remember Jesus' body broken for us, remember his blood shed for us, is given to us at the table corporately corporately we remember what a gift that is I pray that it would do amazing things in our hearts and minds as we reflect on what you've done for us and that we would be uh, just amazed that you would save sinners like us and that we would be sent out on mission for you in Jesus name I pray, amen